Leviticus chapter 1. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the, to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the soot over the wood, which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall then cut it into its pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of the bir- oh, pardon me, of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Father, we thank you for such an immovable and unshakable hope secured by the only one who could secure such a hope, Christ himself. Not the, the blood of bulls or goats, not, um, not certainly not our efforts or our boast or our um, determination, but Christ Himself 
And God, we do rejoice in what we've just sung, that because He is sure, because He is eternal, our hope is eternal. God, we praise You for such a glorious salvation and such a glorious hope that You've given to us. We praise You, Father, that it is by faith that we, we can't add anything to it. God, there's, there's no merit that we bring. There's not initially or ongoing, but it is the work of Christ. It is Your grace demonstrated in Him. And Father, we thank You for the way that the, these types and shadows in the Old Testament depicted that and looked forward to it. God, as we look into Leviticus, we pray that you would help us to see these things and that the sight of um, these sacrifices and looking forward to Christ, they would make it all that much more precious and give that much more reason to glorify you for this final sacrifice that has come. Father, we praise you for... um, these days that we live in, as hard as they are, God, you have appointed our time and our place. You have put us here. And God, you could have put us in such worse surroundings, circumstances, a different time, even harder than this time. We thank you, Father, for the the mercies that are ours, the grace that you've shown to us. We thank you, Father, that um, you put us in a place with brothers and sisters that we can walk together unto the Lord and pursue you together. God, we pray that you would help us to, to do so in a way that's helpful to each other and that um, stirs each other to pick up the pace. We're thankful, Father, for the reality that even in that, it is your goodness and it's your faithfulness more so than ours, or the faithfulness of a church, or its leaders, or the people who make up the body. So we look to you, and we rejoice. We ask you, Father, to come near again tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the first seven chapters of Leviticus give instructions for five personal sacrifices There were national sacrifices, but these chapters aren't describing that. So, for instance, one of them is the Day of Atonement, which is described in Leviticus chapter 16. That was a national sacrifice. There were, additionally, sacrifices offered every morning and every evening. And they were burnt offerings, like what we're going to look at in chapter 1. But they were sacrifices that are presented by the priest morning and evening. These are sacrifices that you or I, the worshiper, would bring including the burnt offering in chapter 1. These five sacrifices could be categorized under a couple of headings. First, they are voluntary. Some of them are voluntary sacrifices. The first three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering, were sacrifices that you bring as you will. The last two, the sin offering and the guilt offering, were required. Tonight we'll be looking at chapter 1, the burnt offering. As a voluntary offering, it reflects the willingness of the worshiper to acknowledge the lordship of God. 
The entire animal was consumed except for the skin. Chapter 7 verse 8 tells us that the skin was given to the priest and that was for the priest. But the rest of the animal was consumed on the altar. And for the one bringing the animal, making the offering, that person did not receive any uh, part of the animal or of the sacrifice. And so with some animals, some sacrifices, the person bringing the offering consumed part of it. With the peace offering, uh, um, the, the offerer received a portion to eat, but not with this offering. The burnt offering was consumed, and so the offerer did not receive any portion. It was an expression of complete surrender to the Lord, an act of of total devotion. The one bringing the offering parted with a personal possession and gave it completely to the Lord, picturing the surrendering of a person's entire self and of the person's entire possessions to the Lord. This was a token of the, the whole. So as the book of Leviticus opens with God calling to Moses from the most holy place, the first words that he utters to Moses about how a people are to approach a holy God is this. It is a call for complete submission to the Lord who accepts nothing less from those who love him. Perhaps we could stop for just a moment and ask, have you committed yourself and all that you have to him? Can you say like Peter to Jesus, behold, we have left everything to follow you. As you read through the book of Leviticus, and I hope that you will, you'll find without question that it is a book of divine instruction. God is telling the people through Moses, here's how to do it. In these first seven chapters, listen, or follow along with me. In chapter 1, verse 1, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, here's, I'm going to tell you this, here's instruction. In chapter 4, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Chapter 5, verse 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Verse 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying. Verse 19. Verse 24. Chapter 7, verse 22. Chapter 7, verse 28. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And that's just in those seven chapters. It continues through the entire book. Again and again, God speaks. And He says, here, He's prescribing to them. Here's how to do this. Here's how to live. Here's how to approach me. So these are not Israel's ideas about how to approach God. They're not Moses' ideas about how to approach God. They are God's own instructions about how to approach Him. If the Israelite worshiper would approach God, he was required to come with the appointed gift to the appointed place and make the appointed presentation. It's not any way you want to, any gift you want to bring, any place you want to bring it. It was as God prescribed. For the New Testament worshiper, we'll find that the demands made by God to the Old Testament worshiper have been met perfectly on our behalf by the Lord Jesus. He himself was the appointed gift 
and the appointed place. And he fulfilled the appointed presentation, offering himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. His perfect obedience assures the New Testament believer that our worship is accepted by the Father. Well, let's look at those three things. First, the appointed gift. Have you ever received an inappropriate gift? Maybe it was inappropriate, inappropriate because of the occasion. In another setting, it might have been okay, but in that setting, not, really not. You know, you shouldn't have done that here. Uh, perhaps, though, it, it's inappropriate because the gift itself was simply inappropriate. I can't believe you gave me that. Sometimes, though, the gift is inappropriate because of who gave it. From someone else, that might have been acceptable, but not from you. The nature of the relationship does somewhat determine what you give and how much and, you know, how intimate. Do any of you have an Amazon wish list? You know, we used to have the uh, Sears catalog, the wish book. And you'd go through and you'd circle or star and bend corners over. Here's my wish list. But now you have an Amazon wish list and you can share with people so they have an idea. This is something that they would like. Um, and so you're not left to guess. God doesn't leave us guessing. He tells us what to bring. What's acceptable from us in the relationship that we're in. And that's what He desires, what He wants is far more important than what we think He might like. What we think might be appropriate. For the burnt offering, there were three gifts that were options. A young bull from the herd, a young ram from the flock of sheep or goats, and a turtle dove or young pigeon. We find this in verse 2 about the animal from the herd or the flock. But then... He goes on to talk about a young bull in verse 3, I believe. And then verse 10, if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats, up for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. And then in verse 14, but if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. Why three options? I mean, just pick and choose. This time I think I'll bring this. Next time I think I'll bring this. Well, no. The different animals each represented a costly sacrifice for the person who made the sacrifice, who brought the offering. But the cost was in proportion to the person's ability to give. A poor Israelite may not have the ability to bring a bull. And so they had the option of giving the less expensive bird. That did not mean that you could randomly choose the cheaper option. If you could afford the bull and you brought the bird, you know, you were, you're offending God. You're, you're, you're being cheap. But God provided so that anyone could bring an offering, but you brought an appropriate one, depended upon your situation. When uh, my older, I may have told you this before, but when my older kids were little, I don't remember exactly how old, but young, we were going Christmas shopping, and they had money, each of them. And as we were walking into the store, I, I called out to them, 
do you, do you have your money? And Malachi and Hannah both said, yes, you know, get my money. Nathan says, I didn't bring my money. And I said, uh, why not? He said, I'm just going to write my name on your gift. <laughs> and I thought, uh, no, you're not either. <laughs> you, know, you can pay me back. I'll help you. But you're not writing your name on my gift. And he got really upset. He thought he'd come up with this genius idea, you know, have his money, his cake and eat it too, right? Um, but God expects that each person gives and gives sacrificially if there's to be true worship. You remember David's words when he was sent by God to buy a threshing floor to build an altar and offer burnt offerings to end the pestilence that had come to Israel. That threshing floor was offered to him for free. I'll give it to you. But David said no. But I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So this was not to be a cheap gift. Also notice that the animal had to come from the herd or the flock. You couldn't go out and trap a wild goat and, and bring it as a sacrifice. That didn't cost you anything, except maybe a little bit of labor. It came from your herd. It came from your flock. This was something that you raised. The animal, in this instance, a male, had to be without defect or without blemish. God demanded the best animal as a token of the worshipers all. Whether you brought a bull, a ram, or a bird, as you were able, each one was accepted by the Lord. But you didn't bring the one that was about to die. You didn't bring the one that was old and, and past its years of service and productivity. You brought the young one that had a lot of life and productivity left. And each of them, again, brought, was brought and offered to the Lord. The Lord accepted each of those according to your ability to bring it. And so in verse 9, verse 13, and verse 17, each of them end, as, as he describes bringing the bull or the ram or the bird, each of those verses ends with it being offered by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. The Lord found it to be a soothing aroma, a pleasing fragrance. He accepts it. The person who could only afford the less expensive bird, was not treated as insignificant by the Lord. That worshiper received the same approval as the one who brought the more expensive offering. What was required was the heartfelt devotion of the worshiper. And there's a principle there that's carried over into the New Testament. A person is to give according to their ability, according to what you have. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul writes and says on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. But as you prosper, as, as you can. In 2 Corinthians 8, 12, which we looked at recently, he writes there as he encourages the Corinthians to, to give um, to this, this offering for the Jewish saints as they'd promised to. And he says, for if the readiness is present... It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So you give from what you have, not from what you don't have. So you bring an animal, an animal that does not have blemishes or defects. And again, it spoke to the worth 
of the gift. You gave your best. Again, you didn't give the one that, that's, you know, past its prime, about to die, sick. That was part of the problem in Malachi's day. Remember in Malachi chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, uh, the Lord, through Malachi, uh, condemned the people. And he said, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? An animal that was without flaws, young and healthy, lots of productivity left. That was an appropriate offering for the Lord, for an act of total commitment to the Lord. It's befitting of a God who is himself perfect and whose work is perfect. Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. If we would be faithful followers of this God, then we must offer up our best to Him. So we come with the appointed gift. But then you come, or the Old Testament worshiper came, to the appointed place. You didn't bring it just anywhere. You brought it to the place that God Himself Appointed. Leviticus 1.3 says, He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. The tent of meeting refers to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's life until the temple was built. But as they're, especially as they're wandering through the wilderness from Sinai to the promised land, it is central. It's central geographically. I mentioned last week that the, the tribes were camped around the tabernacle, and they're arranged by God in order around it. And as the tabernacle moved, the camp packed up and moved. And when, when the glory of the Lord moved, the tabernacle and everything was packed up and moved. And when the glory resided on the tabernacle, the people stayed, no, long, no matter how long that was. It was central also in a structural way, in the way that it, it pointed people to the Lord. The tabernacle, if you want to call it a complex, later a temple complex, but the tabernacle complex was made up of, of two different parts. There was a courtyard that was surrounded by a linen wall or, or these you know, curtains so that you couldn't just see into the courtyard. And the courtyard itself was about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide with the entrance facing to the east. The altar was just inside of the entryway, and then beyond it, at the back of the courtyard, was the tabernacle itself, the tent. When a person entered the courtyard, what's the first thing they see? It's the altar. And then beyond it is the tabernacle, where the glory of the Lord rests. Do you see the picture? If you would approach God, there first must be a sacrifice. You have to come to the altar before you come to Him. Theologically, we could say that the tabernacle was at the center of Israel's life because it was the symbol 
of God's presence among His people. Inside the tabernacle, again, two rooms. You had the holy place where the priests could come and, and serve the Lord in various ways. Some of the blood was brought inside there. Um, there was the altar of incense, the showbread, various things. But inside, beyond that, was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there, the high priest only went once a year on the Day of Atonement. So sacrifices were not to be made just anywhere. They're presented in a place where the Lord inhabited His people. And in the Old Testament, that was most clearly seen in these times at the tabernacle. The Old Testament worshiper could enter into the courtyard with his offering. But he couldn't go further. The priest acted as a mediator between the worshiper and God. Helping him as he offered the sacrifice and bringing that to the Lord. Again, inside the entryway was the altar. Reminding everyone who entered there that God required a sacrifice. This altar is sometimes called the bronze altar. It's made of wood and overlaid with bronze. It's also sometimes called the altar of burnt offering. We see both of those descriptions in Exodus chapter 30, verse 28. When you approach this altar with an animal, what kind of emotions do you think might be stirred? Surely one emotion would be that of sorrow. It is a place of death. And though it was an animal being sacrificed and not you, it was an animal that was costly and it's an animal that, that you identify with because it's being substituted for you. Now again, the burnt offering being described in chapter 1 is the, the personal burnt offering, one that you would bring. But it was also burnt offerings that were offered morning and evening. And so in addition to however many people are bringing burnt offerings on any given day, there's also at least two offerings being made by the priest. Exodus 29, 39 says, the one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Verse 42 says it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. The animal laid out in pieces, the evening sacrifice appeared to be laid out in such a way that it, it smoldered throughout the night. Leviticus 6.9, God commands Aaron and his son saying this is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth on the altar all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. And so the sights and the sounds and smells, all that it signaled death. It was a place of sorrow. But it was also a place of joy. The sacrifices pictured God's acceptance of the believer. The forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. All of that was pictured there. Because this was the way that God has appointed for you to come to Him. And He accepts you through this. Looking forward ultimately to Christ. But this is what he's appointed for now. The sacrifices were not just sorrowful events. They were also joyful. We see this in the fact that they were tied to various festivals of celebration. In Numbers chapter 10 and verse 10. Speaking of a burnt offering. 
The Bible says, Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feast and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. As the offering was being made and God accepted the sacrifice being made, the altar became a place where you met with God and God was and continues to be the worshiper's great source of joy. And so it was an ongoing reminder of how terrible human sin is, but it was also an ongoing reminder that God Himself had provided forgiveness by His grace, resulting in the joy of forgiveness received. And we do see both of those realities in the cross of Jesus. Sorrow produced there by our sin and the undeserved suffering of our Lord as He endures that on our behalf. But also joy in the victory that Christ Himself has achieved on our behalf by paying for our sins and providing forgiveness. I think we see both of those to some degree in the Lord's Supper. We remember His death until He comes and in the remembering of it and the celebrating of it. There's celebration, but there's also sorrow. We remember He died. It was my sin. And yet my sins have been covered. They've been dealt with and propitiated before God so that He finds me acceptable. All that occurred in this picture on the bronze altar as the burnt offering is being made. And so that was the appointed place for them. But what is the appointed place for the New Testament believer? Is it, is it here? No. The Jewish altar is not a picture of you know an altar at the front of a church building or any private altar at home. It's not a picture of Mount Calvary where the cross was. It is a picture of Christ Himself. It's the body of Christ. We don't have a physical, material altar. Hebrews 10, pardon me, Hebrews 13.10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And it is the altar of the body of our Lord Jesus. Well, there's an appointed gift. There's an appointed place. There's also an appointed presentation. You can have the right gift brought to the right place and present it in the wrong way so that it becomes unacceptable. So you want to bring it in the correct way. Present it in the correct way. Did any of you watch the coronation of King Charles over the, was it the weekend? <laughs> Days are running together. This past weekend, I watched about that much of it. Um, but I watched enough to think, surely either they practiced this or someone's whispering in his ear. He's got like a little earpiece in and they're telling him, go here, sit here, do this. Uh, and I did see enough to see that, like, as he's saying whatever, somebody's standing over here with, you know, pieces of paper, flip pad or something, so that he can read what he's supposed to say. There's all this ceremony, but someone's explaining, here's what you do, and here's when you do it. There's a way to do this that's proper. As you come before the Lord, there's a proper way to come. Leviticus 1, Leviticus 1 describes the scene. 
the worshiper would come. And verse 2 says, when any man of you brings an offering, but that is a, a generic. When any person, when any man or woman. Leviticus chapter 12 specifically deals with a burnt offering that a lady brings after she has a child. So the women also brought burnt offerings. I don't know exactly how all this worked beyond what we see right here, but I think that much is obvious. The worshiper brought the animal and you would place your hand on the head of the animal. Um, the New American Standard speaks of laying your hand on the head of the animal, but um, I think the idea is more than, than just, just setting it there, like you might set your hand on the top of a child's head, you know, lightly, gently. It was to, in a sense, to lean on that animal. It's the idea of a burden that you're bearing being transferred to this animal. This animal is becoming a substitute. In other scenarios, we're not told this in Leviticus 1, but in other sacrifices, you would confess your sins as you did that. And the animal becomes a sin bearer. But here, you're still putting your hand on the head of this animal. And there's a picture of identification with it and of your burden being carried by this animal. The worshiper, the one who brought the animal, would then kill the animal. You would slit its throat. Skin it out. Cut it into its pieces to be placed on the fire of the altar. After you've killed the animal and opened up the carcass, the person bringing the sacrifice would wash the animal, removing anything unclean from the inside of the carcass, washing its legs. You're removing any thing that would picture uncleanliness or speak of uncleanliness. We're not told specifically where the bull was in reference to the altar when it was killed, but we are told in verse 11 that the procedure for the ram is the same as the bull, except that it's specified that it is killed on the north side of the altar. If you've ever butchered an animal, this was not a clean procedure. It didn't smell like a rose garden. The sounds would have been sounds associated with death. The smells. The whole picture. And all of that should have impressed the worshiper. That his transgressions had cost the life of another creature. And of course that creature pointed to the ultimate, the final sacrifice made by Christ. While the worshiper killed the animal and, and, and skinned out the animal and cut it into its pieces... As the, the worshiper slit the throat of the animal, the priest caught the blood and poured the, altar, poured the blood out on the altar or sprinkled the altar with it. Verse 5 of Leviticus 1 says, He, the worshiper, shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. By capturing the blood and, and pouring it out, among other things, it demonstrated that this animal's life was not being forfeited for nothing. Here is 
a sacrifice that's a costly gift presented to the Lord and the blood doesn't just fall to the ground as though it's insignificant. It's captured and it's poured out. It's devoted to God. The priest, after you cut the animal into its pieces, placed the cut pieces on the altar, including the head and the fat. And the ram was treated substantially the same way. The bird was treated a bit differently, probably because of its size. And so there weren't two people handling the bird and trying to handle all this, but the priest would wring its neck and without severing its head, break it into pieces to, to remove the, the inside without splitting it in two. The inside, the, the guts of the animal, its gullet, all that's associated with that was thrown onto the ash heap. The bird then was burnt upon the altar and the blood poured out on the side of the altar. Verse 15 tells you a bit about that. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. So an appointed gift is brought to an appointed place and offered in an appointed way. But why? What does it all mean? One commentator writes that sometimes a symbol or a ritual is continued, although its meaning has been lost. We forget why you started doing that and you just keep on doing it. And he mentions that in some places you see monogrammed IHS or IHC on, in churches, you know, like on maybe a, a piece of cloth maybe with a cross on it. And... Um, Sometimes on clergy robes. Some people have thought that that stands for Jesus, the Savior of men. Others think that the IHS stands for in his service. But originally, the idea is it's the first three letters of Jesus' name in Greek. It stood for Jesus. And so the, you know, the original meaning has been forgotten by many, even though we continue... They continue to use it and people look at it and think it's something special without really knowing what it is. But Leviticus 1 makes clear the purpose of this burnt offering. Look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. It is to make atonement so that you may be accepted. What's atonement? It is the idea of appeasement, propitiation. Our sin has angered God. God is angry with the wicked every day. It is against Him and against His holy law. And He doesn't look at it as insignificant or inconsequential. He doesn't view it as something that's inoffensive. He is offended by it. He hates it. It angers him. But the atoning sacrifice pacifies the anger of God. His wrath is propitiated. He's satisfied. What is it that atones? What is it that provides that? Well, it's not 
just this animal. There's not significant value in this animal's blood to actually accomplish that. In the kindness of God, He's shown grace and provided this this pictorial sermon to these people of what has to happen. And it's a constant reminder of what has to happen. But the animals themselves aren't providing it. They portray it. If the animal's blood was anything more than a gesture, if it could actually be something more than symbolic and transfer sin in such a way that the animal could pay for it, then the writer of Hebrews wouldn't say in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it is impossible. The only blood that has sufficient value to take away sins is the blood of Jesus. His blood, as Peter writes, is precious blood. It is by the shedding of Jesus' blood that access has been opened up for us to approach God and be accepted by God. For when we come to the Lord, it's only by the way of of blood that's been sprinkled upon an altar. And Jesus' blood has been done, he's done that. Hebrews 9.22 says, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But Christ's blood has been shed as a sacrifice. And if you're covered by His blood, His blood propitiates for you. He has made it possible by His blood, by His sacrifice to receive acceptance. But without the blood of the Lord Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. In Leviticus 1 and throughout these passages describing the sacrifices, when the worshiper does his part correctly and the priest carries out his part correctly, the result was that God was pleased. In verse 9, it ends with the offering the bull being accepted by God, a soothing aroma to the Lord. We see the same thing in verse 13 with the ram. The same thing in verse 17 with the bird. It's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. It was obvious that the priest had accepted the sacrifice when he allowed you to present it. You show up with the sacrifice. If it were lame and blind like in Malachi's day, the priest should have said, No, I'm not. I'm not having any part of that. Take it back. So when the priest accepted, he's kind of signing off on it. Yep, this is an acceptable sacrifice. But that wasn't enough. But the Lord says he found it a soothing aroma. He found it enough in its picture, looking to the day by faith when Christ would come. The same phrase is used when Noah presented an offering after leaving the ark in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. 
In a similar fashion, the Old Testament believer could leave the tabernacle with the same assurance that the Lord had shown favor to him and his gift. It's a pleasing aroma. That is, by the way, I think a figure of speech. I don't think that God has a nose like man any more than he has an arm like man. Or that the smell is a smell that's necessarily, oh, that's really that smells good. Like, you know, whatever you find smells really good. The idea is that he accepts it. He sees it as acceptable because it's what he's prescribed and it's being brought. He receives it. The Apostle Paul uses the same language of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It's the same language. Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. And unlike the animals, he gives himself. He offers himself willingly. And the Father smells the sacrifice. It's pleasing. He accepts it. And we have the further demonstration that he accepts the sacrifice and is pleased with it by the resurrection of Christ. As Christ is declared by the resurrection to be the Son of God with power. For the Christian, accepted by God through Christ, the Bible also speaks of God finding this kind of pleasure in you. Not in your sacrifice, not that it's atoning in any way, but He sees, he sees us in our obedience and He accepts it because of Christ, but it is a, a sweet-smelling smell to Him, a fragrance. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18, Paul writes of an offering that he's received as he's in prison. He says, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma. He doesn't stop there. If you stop right there, we might think, okay, so Paul's saying he's pleased with it. And certainly Paul is. But listen, he keeps going on. A, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. God sees how they are caring for the apostle and it is a sweet smell to God. He finds it acceptable. Paul calls it an acceptable sacrifice. And then we see the same language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? As Paul obeys the Lord and trusts Him and walks with Him through situations that he doesn't understand, as he's being led by God and obeys and follows, it's pleasing to the Lord. He is a fragrance of Christ to God. He is a sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ in every place. 
we come today through Jesus Christ and we offer ourselves and everything that we are and everything that we have in worship of our Lord. We hold nothing back. We draw no lines from the one who is worthy of everything. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it's well pleasing to the Lord. A soothing aroma. 